Chapter 7, Part 1 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Lardner, Washington, D.C. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart, by Alexander Dumas, Chapter 7, Part 1. A week after the events we have related, as nine o'clock in the evening had just sounded from the castle bell, and the Queen and Mary Satan were sitting at a table where they were working at their tapestry, a stone thrown from the courtyard passed through the window bars, broke a pane of glass, and fell into the room. The Queen's first idea was to believe it accidental or an insult. But Mary Satan, turning round, noticed that the stone was wrapped up in a paper. She immediately picked it up. The paper was a letter from George Douglas conceived in these terms. You have commanded me to live, madam. I have obeyed, and your majesty has been able to tell from the Kinross light that your servants continue to watch over you. However, not to raise suspicion, the soldiers collected for that fatal night dispersed at dawn and will not gather again till a fresh attempt makes their presence necessary. But alas, to renew this attempt now, when your majesty's jailers are on their guard, would be your ruin. Let them take every precaution then, madam. Let them sleep in security while we, we in our devotion, shall go on watching. Patience and courage. Brave and loyal heart, cried Mary, more constantly devoted to misfortune than others are to prosperity. Yes, I shall have patience and courage, and so long as that light shines, I shall still believe in liberty. This letter restored to the Queen all her former courage. She had means of communication with George through Little Douglas, for no doubt it was he who had thrown that stone. She hastened in her turn to write a letter to George, in which she both charged him to express her gratitude to all the lords who had signed the protestation, and begged them, in the name of the fidelity they had sworn to her, not to cool in their devotion, promising them for her part to await the result with that patience and courage they asked of her. The queen was not mistaken. Next day, as she was at her window, little Douglas came to play at the foot of the tower, and without raising his head, stopped just beneath her to dig a trap to catch birds. The queen looked to see if she were observed, and assured that that part of the courtyard was deserted, she let fall the stone wrapped in her letter. At first she feared to have made a serious error, for little Douglas did not even turn at the noise, and it was only after a moment during which the prisoner's heart was torn with frightful anxiety that indifferently, and as if he were looking for something else, the child laid his hand on the stone. And without hurrying, without raising his head, without indeed giving any sign of intelligence to her who had thrown it, he put the letter in his pocket, finishing the work he had begun with the greatest calm, and showing the queen, by this coolness beyond his years, what reliance she could place in him. From that moment, the queen regained fresh hope, but days, weeks, months passed without bringing any change in her situation. Winter came. The prisoner saw snow spread over the plains and mountains, 
and the lake afforded her, if she had only been able to pass the door, a firm road to gain the other bank, but no letter came during all this time to bring her the consoling news that they were busy about her deliverance. The faithful light alone announced to her every evening that a friend was keeping watch. Soon nature awoke from her death sleep. Some forward sun rays broke through the clouds of this somber sky of Scotland. Snow melted. The lake broke its ice crust. The first buds opened. The green turf reappeared. Everything came out of its prison at the joyous approach of spring, and it was a great grief to Mary to see that she alone was condemned to an eternal winter. At last, one evening, she thought she observed in the motions of the light that something fresh was happening. She had so often questioned this poor flickering star, and she had so often let it count her heartbeats more than twenty times, that to spare herself the pain of disappointment, for a long time she had no longer interrogated it. However, she resolved to make one last attempt, and almost hopeless she put her light near the window and immediately took it away. Still, faithful to the signal, the other disappeared at the same moment and reappeared at the eleventh heartbeat of the queen. At the same time, by a strange coincidence, a stone passing through the window fell at Mary Satan's feet. It was, like the first, wrapped in a letter from George. The queen took it from her companion's hands, opened it, and read, The moment draws near. Your adherents are assembled. Summon all your courage. Tomorrow, at eleven o'clock in the evening, drop a cord from your window and drop the packet that will be fastened to it. There remained in the queen's apartments the rope over and above what had served for the ladder taken away by the guards the evening of the frustrated escape. Next day, at the appointed hour, the two prisoners shut up the lamp in the bedroom so that no light should betray them, and Mary Satan, approaching the window, let down the cord. After a minute, she felt, from its movements, that something was being attached to it. Mary Satan pulled, and a rather bulky parcel appeared at the bars which it could not pass on account of its size. Then the queen came to her companion's aid. The parcel was untied, and its contents separately got through easily. The two prisoners carried them into the bedroom, and barricaded within commenced an inventory. There were two complete suits of men's clothes in the Douglas livery. The queen was at a loss when she saw a letter fastened to the collar of one of the two coats. Eager to know the meaning of this enigma, she immediately opened it and read as follows. It is only by dint of audacity that Her Majesty can recover her liberty. Let Her Majesty read this letter then, and punctually follow, if she deign to adopt them, the instructions she will find therein. In the daytime, the keys of the castle do not leave the belt of the old steward. When curfew is rung, and he has made his rounds to make sure that all the doors are fast shut, he gives them up to William Douglas, who, if he stays up, fastens them to his sword belt, or, if he sleeps, puts them under his pillow. For five months, little Douglas, whom everyone is accustomed to see working at the armorer's forge of the castle, has been employed in making some keys like enough to the others, once they are substituted for them, for William to be deceived. Yesterday, little Douglas finished the last. 
On the first favorable opportunity that Her Majesty will know to be about to present itself, by carefully questioning the light each day, little Douglas will exchange the false keys for the true, will enter the Queen's room, and will find her dressed, as well as Miss Mary Satan, in their men's clothing, and he will go before them to lead them, by the way which offers the best chances for their escape. A boat will be prepared and will await them. Till then, every evening, as much as to accustom themselves to these new costumes, as to give them an appearance of having been worn, Her Majesty and Miss Mary Satan will dress themselves in the suits which they must keep on from nine o'clock till midnight. Besides, it is possible that without having had time to warn them, their young guide may suddenly come to seek them. It is urgent, then, that he find them ready. The garments ought to fit perfectly Her Majesty and her companion, the measure having been taken on Miss Mary Fleming and Miss Mary Livingston, who are exactly their size. One cannot too strongly recommend Her Majesty to summon to her aid on the supreme occasion the coolness and courage of which she has given such frequent proofs at other times. The two prisoners were astounded at the boldness of this plan. At first they looked at one another in consternation, for success seemed impossible. They nonetheless made trial of their disguise. As George had said, it fitted each of them as if they had been measured for it. Every evening the Queen questioned the light as George had urged, and that for a whole long month, during which each evening the Queen and Mary Satan, although the light gave no fresh tidings, arrayed themselves in their men's clothes, as had been arranged, so that they both acquired such practice that they became as familiar to them as those of their own sex. At last, the 2nd May, 1568, the Queen was awakened by the blowing of a horn. Uneasy as to what it announced, she slipped on a cloak and ran to the window where Mary Satan joined her directly. A rather numerous band of horsemen had halted on the side of the lake, displaying the Douglas pennant, and three boats were rowing together and vying with each other to fetch the new arrivals. The event caused the Queen dismay. In her situation, the least change in the castle routine was to be feared, for it might upset all the concerted plans. This apprehension redoubled when, on the boats drawing near, the Queen recognized in the elder Lord Douglas, the husband of Lady Loch Leven, and the father of William and George. The venerable knight, who was keeper of the marches in the north, was coming to visit his ancient manor in which he had not set foot for three years. It was an event for Loch Leven, and some minutes after the arrival of the boats, Mary Stuart heard the old Stuart's footsteps mounting the stairs. He came to announce his master's arrival to the queen, and as it must needs be a time of rejoicing to all the castle inhabitants when its master returned, he came to invite the queen to the dinner in celebration of the event. Whether instinctively or from distaste, the queen declined. All day long the bell and the bugle resounded. Lord Douglas, like a true feudal lord, traveled with the retinue of a prince. One saw nothing but new soldiers and servants passing and repassing beneath the queen's windows. The footmen and horsemen were wearing, moreover, a livery similar to that which the queen and Mary Satan had received. Mary awaited the night with impatience. The day before she had questioned her light, and it had informed her, as usual, in reappearing at her eleventh or twelfth heartbeat, that the moment of escape was near. 
but she greatly feared that Lord Douglas's arrival might have upset everything, and that this evening's signal could only announce a postponement. But hardly had she seen the light shine than she placed her lamp in the window. The other disappeared directly, and Mary Stuart, with terrible anxiety, began to question it. This anxiety increased when she had counted more than fifteen beats. Then she stopped, cast down, her eyes mechanically fixed on the spot where the light had been. But her astonishment was great when, at the end of a few minutes, she did not see it reappear, and when half an hour having elapsed, everything remained in darkness. The queen then renewed her signal, but obtained no response. The escape was for the same evening. The queen and Mary Satan were so little expecting this issue, that contrary to their custom, they had not put on their men's clothes that evening. They immediately flew to the queen's bedchamber, bolted the door behind them, and began to dress. They had hardly finished their hurried toilette when they heard a key turn in the lock. They immediately blew out the lamp. Light steps approached the door. The two women leaned one against the other, for they both were near falling. Someone tapped gently. The queen asked who was there and little Douglas's voice answered in the two first lines of an old ballad, Douglas, Douglas, tender and true. Mary opened directly. It was the watchword agreed upon with George Douglas. The child was without a light. He stretched out his hand and encountered the queen's. In the starlight, Mary Stuart saw him kneel down. Then she felt the imprint of his lips on her fingers. Is your majesty ready to follow me, he asked in a low tone, rising. Yes, my child, the queen answered. It is for this evening, then? With your majesty's permission, yes, it is for this evening. Is everything ready? Everything. What are we to do? Follow me everywhere. My God, my God, cried Mary Stuart, have pity on us. Then, having breathed a short prayer in a low voice while Mary Satan was taking the casket in which were the queen's jewels, I am ready, said she, and you, darling? I also, replied Mary Satan. Come then, said little Douglas. The two prisoners followed the child, the queen going first and Mary Satan after. Their youthful guide carefully shut again the door behind him, so that if a warder happened to pass, he would see nothing. Then he began to descend the winding stair. Halfway down, the noise of the feast reached them, a mingling of shouts of laughter, the confusion of voices, and the clinking of glasses. The queen placed her hand on her young guide's shoulder. Where are you leading us? she asked him with terror. Out of the castle, replied the child. But we shall have to pass through the great hall. Without a doubt, and that is exactly what George foresaw, among the footmen whose livery your majesty is wearing, no one will recognize you. My God, my God, the queen murmured, leaning against the wall. Courage, madam, said Mary Satan in a low voice, or we are lost. You are right, returned the queen, let us go, and they started again, still led by their guide. At the foot of the stair he stopped, and giving the queen a stone pitcher full of wine, Set this jug on your right shoulder, madam, said he. It will hide your face from the guests, and your majesty will give rise to less suspicion if carrying something. You, Miss Mary, give me that casket, 
and put on your head this basket of bread. Now that's right. Do you feel you have strength? Yes, said the queen. Yes, said Mary Satan. Then follow me. The child went on this way, and after a few steps the fugitives found themselves in a kind of antechamber to the great hall, from which proceeded noise and light. Several servants were occupied there with different duties. Not one paid attention to them, and that a little reassured the queen. Besides, there was no longer any drawing back. Little Douglas had just entered the great hall. The guests, seated on both sides of a long table ranged according to the rank of those assembled at it, were beginning dessert, and consequently had reached the gayest moment of the repast. Moreover, the hall was so large that the lamps and candles which lighted it, multiplied as they were, left in the most favorable half-light both sides of the apartment, in which fifteen or twenty servants were coming and going. The queen and Mary Satan mingled with this crowd, which was too much occupied to notice them, and without stopping, without slackening, without looking back, they crossed the whole length of the hall, reached the other door, and found themselves in the vestibule corresponding to the one they had passed through on coming in. The queen set down her jug there, Mary Satan her basket, and both, still led by the child, entered a corridor at the end of which they found themselves in the courtyard. A patrol was passing at the moment, but he took no notice of them. The child made his way towards the garden, still followed by the two women. There, for no little while, it was necessary to try which of all the keys opened the door. It was a time of inexpressible anxiety. At last the key turned in the lock, the door opened, the queen and Mary Satan rushed into the garden. The child closed the door behind them. About two-thirds of the way across, little Douglas held out his hand as a sign for, to them to stop. Then, putting down the casket and the keys on the ground, he placed his hands together and blowing into them thrice imitated the owl's cry so well that it was impossible to believe that a human voice was uttering the sounds. Then, picking up the casket and the keys, he kept on his way on tiptoe and with an attentive ear. On getting near the wall, they again stopped, and after a moment's anxious waiting, they heard a groan, then something like the sound of a falling body. Some seconds later, the owl's cry was answered by a twit to woo it is over, little Douglas said calmly. Come. What is over? asked the queen, and what is that groan we heard? There was a sentry at the door onto the lake, the child answered, but he is no longer there. The queen felt her heart's blood grow cold, at the same time that a chilly sweat broke out to the roots of her hair, for she perfectly understood. An unfortunate being had just lost his life on her account. Tottering, she leaned on Mary Satan, who herself felt her strength giving way. Meanwhile, little Douglas was trying the keys. The second opened the door. And the queen said in a low voice, a man who was waiting on the other side of the wall, She is following me, replied the child. George Douglas, for it was he, sprang into the garden and taking the queen's arm on one side and Mary Satan's on the other, he hurried them away quickly to the lakeside. When passing through the doorway, Mary Stuart could not help throwing an uneasy look about her. 
and it seemed to her that a shapeless object was lying at the bottom of the wall, and she was shuddering all over. Do not pity him, said George in a low voice, for it is a judgment from heaven. That man was the infamous warden who betrayed us. Alas, said the queen, guilty as he was, he is none the less dead on my account. When it concerned your safety, madam, was one to haggle over drops of that base blood. But silence, this way, William, this way. Let us keep along the wall whose shadow hides us. The boat is within twenty steps, and we are saved. With these words, George hurried on. The two women, still more quickly, and all four, without having been detected, reached the banks of the lake. As Douglas had said, a little boat was waiting, and on seeing the fugitives approach, Four rowers, couched along its bottom, rose, and one of them, springing to land, pulled the chains so that the queen and Mary Satan could get in. Douglas seated them at the prow, the child placed himself at the rudder, and George, with a kick, pushed off the boat which began to glide over the lake. And now, said he, we are really saved, for they might as well pursue a sea swallow on Solway Firth as try to reach us. Row, children, row. Never mind if they hear us. The main thing is to get into the open. Who goes there? cried a voice above from the castle terrace. Row, row, said Douglas, placing himself in front of the queen. The boat, the boat, cried the same voice. Bring to the boat. Then, seeing that it continued to recede, Treason, treason, cried the sentinel. To arms! At the same moment a flash lit up the lake. The report of a firearm was heard and a ball passed whistling. The queen uttered a little cry. Although she had run no danger, George, as we have said, having placed himself in front of her, quite protecting her with his body. The alarm bell now rang, and all the castle lights were seen moving and glancing about, as if distracted in the rooms. Courage, children, said Douglas. Row as if your lives depended on each stroke of the oar. For ere five minutes, the skiff will be out after us. That won't be so easy for them as you think, George, said little Douglas, for I shut all the doors behind me, and some time will elapse before the keys that I have left there open them. As to these, added he, showing those he had so skillfully abstracted, I resign them to the Kelpie, the genie of the lake, and I nominate him Porter of Lochleven Castle. The discharge of a small piece of artillery answered William's joke, but as the night was too dark for one to aim such a distance as that already between the castle and the boat, the ball ricocheted at twenty paces from the fugitives, while the report died away in echo after echo. Then Douglas drew his pistol from his belt, and warning the ladies to have no fear, he fired in the air, not to answer by idle bravado the castle cannonade, but to give notice to a troop of faithful friends who were waiting for them on the other shore of the lake, that the queen had escaped. Immediately, in spite of the danger of being so near Kinross, cries of joy resounded on the bank, and William, having turned the rudder, the boat made for land at the spot whence they had been heard. Douglas then gave his hand to the queen, who sprang lightly ashore, and who, falling on her knees, immediately began to give thanks to God for her happy deliverance. On rising... The queen found herself surrounded by her most faithful servants, Hamilton, Harry's, and Satan, Mary's father. Light-headed with joy, the queen extended her hands to them, 
thanking them with broken words which expressed her intoxication and her gratitude better than the choicest phrases could have done. When suddenly, turning round, she perceived George Douglas alone and melancholy, then going to him and taking him by the hand, my lord, said she, presenting George to them, and pointing to William, Behold my two deliverers, behold those to whom, as long as I live, I shall preserve gratitude of which nothing will ever acquit me. Madam, said Douglas, each of us has only done what he ought, and he who has risked most is the happiest. But if your majesty will believe me, you will not lose a moment in needless words. Douglas is right, said Lord Satan, to horse, to horse. Immediately, and while four couriers set out in four different directions to announce to the queen's friends her happy escape, they brought her a horse saddled for her, which she mounted with her usual skill. Then the little troop, which composed of about twenty persons, was escorting the future destiny of Scotland, keeping away from the village of Kinross, to which the castle firing had doubtless given the alarm, took at a gallop the road to Satan's castle, where was already a garrison large enough to defend the queen from sudden attack. The queen journeyed all night, accompanied on one side by Douglas, on the other by Lord Satan. Then at daybreak they stopped at the gate of the castle of West Nidri, belonging to Lord Satan, as we have said, and situated in West Lothian. Douglas sprang from his horse to offer his hand to Mary Stuart, but Lord Satan claimed his privilege as master of the house. The queen consoled Douglas with a glance and entered the fortress. Madam, said Lord Satan, leading her into a room prepared for her for nine months, your majesty must have need of repose after the fatigue and the emotions you have gone through since yesterday morning. You may sleep here in peace, and disquiet yourself for nothing. Any noise you may hear will be made by a reinforcement of friends which we are expecting. As to our enemies, your majesty has nothing to fear from them, as so long as you inhabit the castle of a Satan. The queen thanked again her all her deliverers, gave her hand to Douglas to kiss one last time, kissed little William on the forehead, and named him her favorite page for the future. Then, profiting by the advice given her, entered her room, where Mary Satan, to the exclusion of every other woman, claimed the privilege of performing about her the duties with which she had been charged during their eleven months' captivity in Loch Leven Castle. End of Chapter 7, Part 1 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart.